Thank you for listening to the Grace Harvest Church podcast. For more information, go to graceharvestchurch.org. Well, you know, uh, as I share with you today, I, I just want to start by kind of telling you about something that, that happened to me when I was uh, in the first service. I was up here in the front row, and we were singing, I think, the second song, and, uh, and God just broke in on me. And he did something inside of my heart, and it kind of messed me up, and uh, in a good way. It's, sometimes it's good to be messed up, amen? And I was standing there, and the thing that struck me is that we face in our time and in our culture, in our lives, many of us, because of the assaults on our minds and our hearts in the time that we live, we face a great temptation, a great struggle that our hearts would not become cold or hard. Because, you know, when you live in a jaded time, when you live in a time of cynicism, it's really easy for your heart to grow kind of cold and hard and your love to grow cold. Jesus warned us that one of the signposts of the end of the age would be that the love of many would grow cold, right? And we have to really guard ourselves from cold hearts. And one of the ways you guard yourself from a cold heart is you open your heart to God, right? You have to be vulnerable. How many of you know love is risky? Love is risky and love is vulnerable. You got to chance it. And that's true in human relationships, and that's true with God. And I was standing there, and I, I just felt like God softened my heart. I felt like a warm breath came over anything that maybe was growing a little hard, and, and I was just so, so grateful. And then I found myself overwhelmed with the idea of preaching to you about the coming of Jesus. Like, like this idea, you know, this thing we call Advent or Christmas, this season that we celebrate, we're talking about one of the most mysterious and profound, if not the most mysterious and profound thing that's ever happened in human history. We're talking about the idea of God enfleshing himself. We're talking about the idea of the transcendent God without boundary coming down and putting himself in an infant body and still being without boundary. I mean, right? So we, we are, we're talking about things that many of us have become so familiar with. What's the saying? Familiarity breeds contempt. We've become so familiar, or these things are just kind of passe, or okay, another Christmas message. And you think it's bad for you. Imagine preaching it every year. Every year as I come before the scripture and I begin to go over the texts of the incarnation and I start meditating on the idea of God coming among us and walking among us and getting in some skin, God in a bod. Every time I wrestle with those things and walk through those things, every year it's like, Lord, Help me to take this message. I've been here a long time, and many of you know that. Help me to take this message that I've preached hundreds of times, some of the same texts over and over, and somehow bring it out in a way that comes alive. And how many of you know I can't do that? That's the Holy Spirit's job. He's the illuminator. He's the revelator, right? He's the one who pulls back the curtain and opens our eyes. And so my prayer for you today is that God would open your eyes. God will pull the curtain back and bring light to your mind and somehow give you a sense of holy wonder and awe and that you would again go, wow, that's beautiful. That's amazing. God came among us. He favored us, not just with his smile and his presence, 
But he came and he walked among us and he got down in the dirt with us. He got down in the muck with us. He got down in the sin with us. He, he went into places where evil was, right, kicked the doors down and took the devil on face to face. He got right down in our stuff because he loved us and he wanted to be near us. He wanted to be close to us. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. I want to talk to you about the invasion of God. The birth of Jesus is heaven invading earth, right? It's God coming incognito, God disguised, the creator becoming creature. It's profound. You know, in the complete story of Mark Hanks, he tells this, he says, you know, Elvis Presley, and I'll stop right there because my wife and I were at home talking and we were bringing out the idea that there's probably people in this room who don't know who Elvis Presley was. And I had a moment of deep grief. I almost cried. I thought there are people being born and alive right now that have been alive for a while who don't know who Elvis Presley was. And, and so in case you don't know, many call Elvis Presley the king of rock and roll. He was one of the early pioneers of rock and roll, and he died prematurely at the age of 42, and he was amazingly gifted, and unfortunately, he, you know, he grew up in the church. He grew up learning to sing in church, and then fame and, and all of the trappings of this age and the spirit of this age ruined him, and he died prematurely. But there are people I know that have his gospel albums that swear, man, when he sang gospel, the presence of God came. And he had such a touch on his life. So that's who Elvis Presley is, if you don't know. And if you're still curious, YouTube it. Right? So Elvis Presley used to frequent Little Thompson's Steakhouse in Tennessee. He was good friends with the owner who used to give him free food before he was famous. That's a typical artist right there. Artists are usually poor and need free food, okay? So gave him free food before he was famous. One night when he was at the height of his fame... The steakhouse held the ultimate Elvis Presley impersonator contest. A large crowd arrived, including Elvis Presley himself. Elvis decided to take part, and he sat quietly at the back of the restaurant. Elvis said confidently, I'm going to mash this. Little Thompson was worried the place would go crazy when everyone realized it was Elvis. There was no need. He sang, Love Me Tender to polite applause, and he came in third place in the contest. <laughs> that really happened. Elvis Presley came in third place at an Elvis Presley impersonator contest. <laughs> and, you know, I, I read and I see all the time interviews with celebrities or artists or musicians or, or you know, sports people. Sports people? Yeah, you know, athletes. And, and they'll say, you know, I ran into somebody on the street and they said, you know, you look just like so-and-so. You know the guy who plays Mr. Bean? I, I saw a story with him where he was talking to somebody and they were like, you know that guy that does Mr. Bean? And he's like, yeah, yeah, you look just like him. <laughs> well, thank you. It's because I am him. Right, right. <laughs> That's really funny. No, you're not. No, really, I am Mr. Bean. No, you're not. No, you're, okay, good to meet you. Have a nice day. And you know, that's kind of how it was in a lot of ways when Jesus came into the earth. I mean, I want you to think about it. Scholars, the best scholars in the world, the most brilliant minds in, in Israel, 
had spent their entire lifetime studying Scripture, looking for Messiah. They had prepared themselves for the coming of the one they were yearning for. And if there was ever a time they yearned, it was the time that Jesus came. For Rome had Israel under their foot. Oppression was everywhere. Injustice was everywhere. Death was everywhere. They were experiencing maybe the mightiest empire of the ancient world. The one that in Bible prophecy was... The, the, the symbolism were iron feet, iron legs, the iron of Rome. They were under that. And so they were looking and they were yearning and they had it all figured out. They had all the prophetic texts laid out. They knew when the Messiah, what, what he would, what he, where he would come from, what he would be like. They had it all figured out. He was going to be a warrior. He was going to come on a white horse. He was going to crush Rome. He, they had it down. And then when he showed up as a baby in a little town, to parents who were unknown, it messed them all up. It messed them all up. He came in a distressing disguise. He came in a way they didn't expect. He invaded the earth as a baby boy. You ever thought about that? When we think of invasions, we don't usually equate them to something a baby would do. I, I, I was thinking about that in my mind last service. Just, you know, get in your mind right now a little baby sitting on a white horse with a tiny little sword, right? And going, yeah, it's just not going to work. It's not intimidating at all. And it's going to be a short invasion, right? Babies are usually harmed during invasions. Babies don't lead them. When Jesus was conceived and born into our world over 2,000 years ago, heaven invaded earth. God established a beachhead that would begin a great takeover of planet Earth. God literally snuck into our world disguised as a helpless little human creature. Creator became creature, and all of creation was turned on its head. God, again, invaded Earth in Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? It's an invasion. And I want to look at that invasion today, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to go down some roads of doctrine, of theology. I want to talk to you about God and God coming near us. And what I'm hoping is that the Lord will make it new. He'll make it fresh to you. Those of you who have Bible knowledge and have learned this story your whole life, that God will break in on you and cause you to wonder again. I think I say this every year when I preach. It's like, may God show it to us fresh, amen? So I want you to think about this. The first thing we're gonna look at is something you know, it's something really simple, but I'm hoping you'll see it in a new way, and that is this invasion starts with the idea that Jesus was conceived by heaven's Holy Spirit. He was conceived by heaven's Holy Spirit. Look at Matthew 1 with me, verses 18 through 21. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, let's stop right there real quick. She was betrothed to Joseph. And in that culture, betrothal usually lasted around a year. And during that time, the couple was committed to one another. They didn't sleep together, but they lived in a lot of ways as though they were already married. It was kind of a season to make sure they were compatible. They were close to both families. Both families would give input, would watch over them, would kind of help lead them. There would be this sense if you were the, the man that you were being watched by Mary's parents. And if you were the woman... You were being watched by Joseph's parents, but it was a much more the, the reality that the bride's family was checking out the dude, right? Making sure he was worthy. 
So they were betrothed to one another, and I just want you to think about this. Use your holy imagination, but before they, it says Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, that means in marital intimacy, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Let's continue. Look what it says. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, now think about this. Mary and Joseph are betrothed. They're waiting to get married. And all of a sudden, Joseph starts noticing a little pooch. And he's like, Mary, what's up? Joseph, I've been meaning to tell you. An angel visited me, and I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Now, you can see what Joseph's response to that would be. Right. Okay, Mary. Okay, how do I do this now? In our culture, we don't have the authority to do this anymore, but in our culture, if a woman was found to be pregnant when she was betrothed to somebody and they hadn't been together, that would usually result in her death by stoning. I don't want that to happen to her. So what do we do here? I don't want to embarrass her too much. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to divorce her quietly. We'll figure out something to where she doesn't have to experience shame. Right? And so right about the time he's going to do that, there's intervention. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. That name Jesus means Yahweh or God is Savior or salvation. He saves, right? So imagine you're going along and all of a sudden God breaks in on you. He gives you a dream. He speaks to you and he says, listen, what's in her is from me. I did bring life to her in a supernatural way, okay? And I want you to see this again in Luke 1.35, and it says, and the angel answered her, Mary asks, how's this gonna happen? You're gonna be pregnant, you're gonna bear the Son of God, how's this gonna happen? Here's the response of the angel, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, why is this important? Why is this familiar Bible story we've been reading at home for decades, centuries, millennia? Why is this important? Well, because, you know, we see in the Scripture over and over that God helped people through the Bible to conceive children when they were unable to conceive naturally. We see Abraham and Sarah. We see Isaac and Rebekah. We see Jacob and Rachel. We see Elkanah and Hannah. However, these children were still conceived through the normal relations of a man and a woman while Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit within the womb of a virgin girl named Mary. This is a new kind of conception. This is heaven's invasion. And the question is, why is Holy Spirit conception important? And, and listen, let, let me tell you one of the reasons why this is important, because this very idea is being assaulted. There are people out there in, in, in church world that are actually saying, Virgin birth is not that important. It's not that important. And we'll talk about the virgin birth in a minute. It's not that important. It's, it's, it's just kind of a, a symbolic thing. But the scripture seems to indicate very clearly that it's a literal thing. Amen? Can anybody help me preach in this room? 
Okay, so why is this important? Because Jesus had to be conceived through the Holy Spirit because human DNA and blood are tainted by original sin, right? So he couldn't save if he wasn't fully God and fully pure and holy man, right? So it had to be a Holy Spirit conception. Secondly, Jesus had to be conceived through the Holy Spirit because he is divine. The God-man reconciles God and man. Jesus had to show forth both his human nature and his divine nature. So Holy Spirit conception in a virgin woman is the divine nature and the human nature being perfectly fused together in one and making it possible then for God and man who have been separated by sin and death and all the ages of evil that have happened are reconciled in the person of Jesus Christ through the cross, through his life, through his resurrection. That's the only way redemption can work. He had to be conceived of the Holy Spirit, amen? Secondly, this invasion was that Jesus was conceived and born of a virgin woman. Look at Luke 1, 26 through 31. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he said to her, the angel said to her, came to her and said to her, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. That's so powerful. By the way, let's just, let's just divert from my notes for a minute. Let me talk to you about something that's really important here. Why, why is this important? Well, first and foremost, it's important because Mary is just like you and me. She's, she's just a, a girl, a young woman. Most scholars think maybe 14 to 16, 17 years old, right? She's, by the way, she's not sinless. Some branches of Christianity teach that she was sinless and pure. She wasn't. She was a sinner like everyone else. The greeting of the angel. Greetings, favored one. The angel's not saying to her, you're favored because you've merited it, because you're better than anyone else, because you're good, because you're so holy and pure that God wants you on his team. He's saying, greetings, favored one, because that's what God does. That's the nature of the gospel. God is the pursuer. He's the chaser. He runs after people that are running from him. That's the whole story of the Bible from beginning to end. It's God's pursuit of rebels to make them lovers. He wants to make rebels into lovers. That's what he's doing in your life. That's why sometimes when you're going through a season that's kind of dark or you feel like you've got off course and you just want, you wish you could just get away from him, right? You just wish you could get away from all those Christians telling you, you need the Lord, man. You need to turn back to Jesus and all those other signs around you everywhere you turn in your life that are appealing to you. Come home, come back, and you're trying to run away from it. That's because God is chasing you. You're his. He loves you. He's after you. Quit your running. That's the gospel. The pursuit of God to rebel men and women, right? And so Mary's there, and, you know, obviously there were some things about Mary that were profound. We, we know she must have been a woman who was deep in Scripture. 
Because later she breaks into what's known as the Magnificat, and as she declares the Magnificat, she, she literally weaves all kinds of Old Testament prophecies and scriptures about Jesus through her song. That comes from a well. She had some stuff inside of her, right? It's, and here's what's profound about that. Hebrew women would not have grown up being instructed in the scripture like boys would have been. Boys were instructed by the by the rabbis, but girls would have been instructed at home. And many times they didn't have any literacy of scripture, but she speaks it. So she had a lot of wonderful, amazing things about her, but she's not like some branches of Christianity teach, somehow so holy and untouchable that she's kind of near the Savior. That's absolutely, she's a sinner who needed a Savior, who needed salvation as much as anybody else. Amen. And by the way, she did have more children later and, and, and go on to be a mother. And, and as I said, another branch of Christianity teaches she never had any children after Jesus, that she remained a virgin her entire life. So isn't that good to know? She's just like you and me. And God came to her and favored her when she wasn't deserving of any favor, right? None of us are deserving of favor. That's why it's called favor. Favor is God moving toward us when we're undeserving being kind to us when we don't deserve kindness, loving us and, and lavishing, pouring out on our lives when we've rejected His love. That's, that's favor. That's grace. Are you with me? So why did Mary have to be a virgin? Well, Mary had to be conceived of the Holy Spirit in a virgin woman so there could be no question of His divinity or humanity. If Mary had already been married or had other children before Jesus, there would always be questions as to whether the child conceived in her was from the Holy Spirit or from Joseph. Some have tried to minimize the virgin birth, but it's very important to establish that Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is fully God and human and can therefore save and relate to humans before God. Okay, so that's why that's important. Again, this is a whole new kind of human being. How many of you know virgins don't typically have babies? The, the birth of Jesus demonstrates for us the reality that heaven still intervenes in human affairs. And that natural laws of human reproduction are subject to God and His sovereign rule. Jesus is the one and only virgin conceived man. He is heaven invading earth in a person. That's really important. This is basic Christianity, but it's really important we get this right. Because if you get this wrong, if you get the foundation wrong, everything that follows after it is wrong. See, foundations are really important. How many of you know if you've got a bad foundation in your home, you're going to have trouble up the road? Things are going to go wrong. Things are going to start to fall down. Walls don't stand up real good over time when foundations are bad, right? And then number three, invasion here. Jesus' birth was heralded by a heavenly star. I want you to wrap your head around this one with me. Matthew 2, 1 and 2, and 9 and 10. Look at what it says here. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came, and rest, came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Why is this important? Have you ever wondered about this? Think about this too. Matthew 
this is really important information here. Matthew, of all of the gospels, gospel writers, gives us the most what you might call Hebraic gospel. It's the most Jewish of the four gospels. Matthew really focuses on Jesus' role as king over Israel and over the Jews. And yet, it's the only gospel account where the focus is on Gentiles. What do I mean by Gentiles? Non-Jewish people who were pagans, who worshipped other gods. Now, there's a lot of debate about the wise men, the magi. Some think maybe they were of the ilk that had existed in Babylon when the Jews were taken to Babylon and they were left over from that. They think that they might have been part of kind of the leftover from when Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in that land because that's what they were. They were magi. A lot of people don't realize that. They came from that part of the world, Medo-Persia. We don't really know, but we know these were people who were both astronomers and astrologers. They believed that the heavenly bodies could teach them things and also that the heavenly bodies were predictive and talking to us and telling us about the world. And, they, they, and somehow, in the midst of that, these guys were looking for God, even though they didn't know God. At least we don't think they did. And so they're looking at the stars, and what does God do? He meets them. Because many ancient mythologies and legends have stories of the heavens and the stars heralding the birth and the activity of, of a God. But none record a step-by-step -step narrative of an actual star appearing and guiding people to the birth of God in the flesh. The ancient Roman world, would, excuse me, the ancient Roman world often tried to tie the birth of a Caesar to the appearance of stars, comets, or the alignments of planets. I don't know if you know this, but the term gospel is not a religious term. It's a secular term. It's a political term. Gospels were declarations made in ancient Rome and in the Greco-Roman world. Whenever a Caesar or an important event would happen, they would send out riders into all the different parts of the Roman Empire. They would get the, the word out that a Caesar was born or a Caesar's child was born, and they would read in the public square the gospel of this event. And it was merely the telling of the good news of the birth of a king and all that was going to come to the world because of the birth of that king and how the birth of that king was heralded by the stars and the comets and the alignment of planets. So they would read these gospels. Okay, so imagine this. When Ce I've actually read the, the gospel of Caesar Augustus. It's really interesting. It opens up with, you know, God has visited us because they believe the Caesars were gods. God has visited us. He's given us a new child and the heavens declare this and the stars proclaim it and all of the earth is going to be part of this beneficent work of the gods who have favored us on earth with the, the many benefits and blessings of, this, of the birth of this king, something like that. And they would read this. So when Matthew writes his gospel, Mark writes his gospel, Luke writes his gospel, John writes, writes his gospel, they write that gospel with a backdrop that the culture in the Greco-Roman world would know that he's talking about the true king who really is God in the flesh and has come to the earth. And the earth and all people and all nations and all tribes are really going to be benefited and changed and rescued from sin and death and the power of it through the birth of this child. Amen. That's the truth. Spitting all over the place. It's great, isn't it? See, it was a common idea in the ancient world to have activity in the heavens relate to activity on earth. God met the pagan world where they were and showed them that Jesus was the Savior of all the different people by giving them a sign in the heavens. Jesus is the God not only of observant religious Jews, but of seeking pagans. 
He's the God of all. See, this was the beginning of the transition, the transition of covenants. God was stepping on the scene himself. He was Israel personified, and he was coming to save his people, and he was coming to save the world. And right from the get-go, he doesn't just speak to the Jews, but he speaks to the whole world by having magi come from the ends of the earth. I've read that the, the trip they took would have been about 900 miles. Now, even if they made good time, they would have, and by the way, it wouldn't have been three guys on camels. It would have been huge retinues, maybe hundreds. These were pretty big deal people. And so they're traveling over the desert, right? And it, it could have taken quite some time. Even if they, they traveled at 20 miles a day, which is a lot with a large group of people. Right? So it took them months and months to get there. And when they arrive, they are arriving to see the true king of all, the true king of the world. Why did God use a star to, save the, to guide the magi? Excuse me, Because God meets human beings where they are. These priests of ancient paganism watched the stars and believed that they gave signs as to the activity of the gods. Jesus is the savior of Jews and non-Jews and met these men where their faith was. God draws people and meets seekers. God invades earth through signs in the sky. Even space revealed God's invasion to people. And I want to tell you right now, this very moment, the scripture tells us in Psalm, what is it, 19? The day into day utters speech and the very, the very creation, the very stars, everything in creation is speaking. There is a God. He sent his son. He wants to save you. He wants to rescue you. He wants to take darkness from you and bring you light. All of creation is talking constantly about God. We just need to hear it. And that takes me to the last point, wonderful invasion. Jesus is Emmanuel. God is with us. Amen? Why is this important? Matthew 1, 23, second part of the verse is, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, I know this confuses people sometimes because they say, wait, wait, I thought his name was to be called Jesus. And, and some of us think maybe his middle name's Emmanuel, right? Jesus, Emmanuel, Christ? No, 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 it's not. No, see, in, in the ancient Hebrew world, leaders and, and Messiah had many, many titles and many names. We know in Isaiah, it says, and he shall be called, what, the ninth chapter, right? He shall be called Wonderful, Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, right? So he's all of these things and more and more. So Emmanuel is, is a name that represents character, nature. So Jesus is what? The name Jesus, Yeshua, in the Hebrew, or the name in, in English for Joshua in Spanish, Jesus, right? That name, Yeshua, means Yahweh, God, is Savior, that's Jesus, and Emmanuel means God is with us. So you put those two things together right in his birth, and the main story of his birth is God has come to be with us to save us. Isn't that beautiful? So God's come to be with us to save us, to be near us. He's not a distant God. He's not a far-off God. He's not out there in space. He's not on another planet. He's not just in another realm. He is literally surrounding us. His kingdom is at hand He's cl as close as our breath. Listen, this idea that God's off in some distant space is, is not right. I, I guess 
you could say that God's maybe in a different dimension, but that dimension is right here. I mean, if it was possible to go with a zipper and open it up, you would see that heaven is surrounding us. The glory of God is all around us. God is moving among us. We know angels are all around us. We know God's activity is here right now. Jesus said, repent, turn from your sin, change your thinking, change your mind for the kingdom of heaven, the rule and reign of God's heaven is within reach at hand. What's he saying to us? God's around you. The problem has been our ability to see. Right? We have to be born from heaven to live in heaven. Does that make sense? So, so let's look at this. Jesus is called Emmanuel. Jesus was called many names or titles. One of his names is Emmanuel. God with us. That's what it means. This is the most powerful and profound thought yet. God is with us in the coming of Jesus. His title, nature, name means that God has come to us in human form. The human loss of fellowship and connection with God because of sin can now be bridged through this one who is God with us. And let me be clear about something. When I say the human connection's been lost, I don't mean that, you know, we sinned and God went, I hate humanity and I can't be near them. So I'm going to be distant. That's the way a lot of people interpret. But actually what happened was when we sinned, blindness and deadness came into us. And so the life of God, there's two kinds of life, right? There's Zoe life, excuse me, there's bios life. That's the life in your body and your blood pumping through you where we get biology. And then there's Zoe life. That's the life of God. And the life of God was lost in the fall. And the life of God is restored in a new birth. So when a person trusts in Jesus, puts faith in Jesus, believes that Jesus was crucified in their place and took their sin and he rose bodily from the dead, when a person embraces that and they really come to believe God enters into them and that Zoe life that was lost in the beginning is restored and now we can relate to God. But before that, we're blind and we're dead and we're dull to God. And it's because we breached the relationship. We ran, right? And God, so what's the story of the Bible? The story of the Bible is all this Old Testament, New Testament, all the way to the Revelation from Genesis to Revelation. It's the story of God's relentless pursuit of rebels to make them lovers, as I said earlier, to bring us back, to make us one. That's what he's doing. That's what, he, that's what the good news is. God's after you. You can resist, but resistance is futile. It truly is. You can't resist forever. So, so think about this. The human loss of fellowship and connection with God because of sin can now be bridged through this one who is God with us. The ultimate loneliness and alienation we often feel but cannot put into words can be healed and restored through a man who understands us yet is above us as God. Now listen, if we got really honest, all of you in this room, no matter where you're at in this journey, no matter what stage you're in, no matter if you're, you're a skeptic and you're out here on the edges and you're just kind of checking out, you know, church and Jesus and the Bible and God, or you've been walking with him forever and ever, you know that even if you know him, there are these times in your life when you feel a deep, profound sense of sadness and loneliness inside and you feel almost like an alienation. 
You'll have those moments when you're alone with your own thoughts. And, and you think that relationship, you think that that loneliness is going to be healed by a person, by sex, by some kind of substance. You just think that if you can get better friends, and listen, all those things are important, friends and sexuality, we're made that way in relationships, all of it, but, but have you ever noticed you, you try all that stuff, you do it, and then it's over and that profound sense of loneliness and alienation is still there. It's because there's only one who can scratch that itch. There's only one who can touch that deep place in us, right? It's God. And that's what makes the gospel so beautiful. Emmanuel, God with us, is God came down and said, listen, I'm gonna wrap myself in the same stuff you have. I'm gonna suffer what you suffer. I'm gonna laugh like you laugh. I'm gonna celebrate like you celebrate. I'm gonna weep. I'm gonna live it all. I'm gonna go through every stage you go through. I'm gonna hurt like you hurt. And in the end, I'm gonna lift you out of the darkness that you've been in. And I'm gonna truly give you the fellowship, the connection, the oneness that you're looking for, and it's found in me. Right? And so I know that binging Netflix doesn't do it for me. Seriously. Hours on social media fall short, right? Doing the fun stuff you like to do, the thrill stuff, that we live in an age of people being adrenaline junkies, the next thrill. Maybe that'll do it. It doesn't work because only God can give us what we're looking for. And Jesus is God with us in our skin, down here with us. Amen? That ultimate loneliness and alienation we feel can be healed and restored through Emmanuel. That's a different Christmas message, isn't it? Right? It's not just about consumerism and commercialism and getting caught up in everything. It's not just about being overwhelmed with your sense of obligation to spend more money than you can afford. It's about living with Emmanuel and making Emmanuel known. Think about what good news it is to people. God's near you. You might not know it yet. Imagine telling people this. God's after you. He loves you. He's not just mad at you all the time. He doesn't want to make an ink spot of you. He wants you. He's after you. You want to know how much he loves you? His son stretched out his arms on a Roman torture device and gave his life, poured his blood out. That's how much he's after you. That's how much you, that's good news. God doesn't see you. Yes, your sin has put up a barrier in you. Yes, it makes us an enemy. But God dealt with that. He dealt with the enemy syndrome. It's all been done in the Son. And now He wants you. He's after you. Tell the world. That's what Jesus was saying. Tell the world. I want them. God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. I'm after you, world. He asked the Father. What did He ask for? The nations as an inheritance in the uttermost parts of the earth is his possession. 
He asked the Father when He ascended, Father, I want the world. Give me every ethnos, every ethnicity, every tongue, every tribe. I want it all. He's greedy for us because He loves us. He's after us. Amen? Emmanuel has come. Jesus says Emmanuel had to come because we're powerless to get to God and reconcile Him with Him because of our own stuff. Why don't you stand with me? May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine on you. Go with God. He goes with you. God bless you.